good everybody welcome to the onyx report hoping everybody is well oh man been a good week i am excited to be here happy to see everybody coming through shout out christopher williams for the early donation much appreciated uh shout out to barry little right supporting our scholars and independent blackmail media <laughs> hashtag if not us, who? I love that. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> That's tight. Uh, you know, shout out to Wrench Turner. You know, always supportive. Says on the wood, on the wood. Good. Your efforts are appreciated. Good doctor. Much appreciated, man. Thank you for that. Shout out to Ian. Ian Graves in the house. BGS Ibmore. What's up, man? Good to see you in here. Uh, yeah, folks coming through early. Much appreciated. Atlanta State FL, I think it is. I think FI or FL. Gale at night. You know, Spain man in the building. What's up, Spain man? 
few people in here. Barry, what's up? Creative Force, Jones, uh, yeah, F Holiday in here. Hey, Rue, what's going on, man? Busy Mike. We got Gary in here. Had a soul. What's up? You know, um, yeah. Salute to Gigi. Absolutely, that's the beat maker right there. Indigo Flow. What's up? Toxic masculinist. <laughs> Death before dishonor. Salute. Appreciate that support. Uh, we got Dion, Electrician 480. What's up? These beats. Y'all know the deal. Like, share, subscribe, join, and donate. Support the channel if you would. We can continue to bring you this independent blackmail thought. You can do so with the various methods on the screen at the very bottom. You got the Venmo. You got the PayPal. You got the Cash App. Uh, and you got the Patreon. You know. But if you're not uh, familiar, this is what it is. You know. Onyx Report, where black male justice advocates uplift black men and boys using critical analysis, right? And there are ways you can support the show by doing that. And one of them is becoming a patron. Um, by becoming a patron, you can support the Onyx Report here on YouTube. You can support the Institute for Black Male Studies, as well as, uh, you know, the Onyx TV channel it is what it is. So we still got a lot of irons in the fire, and we're trying to keep it that way. There are a lot of different levels of membership you can participate in through Patreon or through YouTube. So you can choose to support either way, become members, various perks. I'll be doing more content for my patrons as well. Um, so support the channel. And again, as I said, make sure you support the Onyx Network, which you can find on iPhone, Android, Amazon Fire TV, or Roku. Right? I'll be putting up some more content on that very soon. All right, shout out to Electrician480. Appreciate your hard work, brother. Appreciate you. Yeah, it's been, uh, I've been a little inconsistent this semester. You guys know I was uh, doing two, sitting on two search committees, teaching classes. So it's been just a crazy semester, but I'm trying to get back on track as I get my son ready to head to school. Uh, so your boy is definitely looking at uh, empty nest life. So it is what it is. We getting it in. We about to celebrate his graduation this week. So it's all good. He's going to hit the stage and I'm looking forward to that. So very happy about that and salute to everybody out there who's going through some type of graduation, whatever it is, salute to you. Congratulations. You know, we need to support uh, that, those endeavors regardless of whether it's academic, whether it's trade-based, I don't give a fuck what it is. So we got to support those of us that are putting in the work to elevate, right? Uh, I'll probably be doing... Uh, something about this more directly soon enough. I just wanted to quickly shout out in case you weren't sure. I would highly suggest you go check out Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. My son and I went to go check it out. I won't be giving away any spoilers. Um, you know, all I can tell you is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> go check it out. That's all I'll say for now. Uh, I'll come back to that at another point. Uh, probably, like I said, I'll probably do something specific to that or for that uh, a little bit later, but uh, yeah, you need to check it out. Mujahid, what's up? Salam alaikum. Welcome, salam to you too. Uh, Jeff, Barry, got everybody in here. All right, Mr. Ball, uh, Layman's Journal in the house. Yeah, um, you know, y'all know I'm gonna have to get artisan and Layman's Journal. We got to get together and talk about this because, uh, yeah, that movie was ridiculous. Anyway, all right, so let's get into a little bit. You know, got one more housekeeping item. Uh, that I do want to make sure that we are aware of. 
right? So I think I shared this with you the other week. If you did not see it, I want you to definitely check it out. So this is my upcoming book and uh, it will be out in July. Um, but there it is. So this is the Rutledge Solutions for Anti-Black Misandry, Flat Blackness and Black Male Death, the Black Masculine's Turn, right? So it, it will be out available for pre-order on July 12th. Uh, we'll ship after August 2nd, so check it out. I put the link in the description box. I will also put it in the comments. So inclined, go ahead and save that if you would. And I would definitely appreciate your support uh, when the book is out. So yeah, go ahead and check that out and support it so we can get that going, right? This is a lot of the work we've been doing. We've been talking about for years. We're finally getting it in print for the world to see. Uh, backed by the appropriate amount of data, right? All right. So I haven't done this one in a while. And I always tell you guys that this is fairly organic, but we're going to do one real quick for the say the Sacred Black Masculine series, right? And this is basically an acknowledgement of what I argue Black men have been doing, you know, since time immemorial, which is basically uh, being men, protecting, supporting, so on and so forth. All the things that we're accused of not doing, and there are plenty of examples. I just, I just kind of handle it organically when it crosses my desk. But in this instance, we're going to look today at a gentleman named Jonathan McRae. Right? So shout out to Jonathan McRae. Um, let me make sure this thing acts right. You know, some of these little websites act a fool sometimes. So let's go ahead and check out Jonathan McRae a little bit. His brother is a hero. And uh, I want to make sure he's acknowledged as such. As, uh, the title of this article is, I just ran in there. Bystander pulls people and pets out of a burning Kenner house. Man says he saw a house on fire, so he stopped and rescued those inside. Right? So shout out to this brother. Um, I'll let Snoop read a little bit of this, this to us and um, we'll kind of go from there. So let's check it out. Ah, crap. Man driving past a fire at a Kenner home stopped to rescue those inside. Thanks to his and others' selfless heroism, more than a dozen people are safe. Jonathan McRae says he's far from a hero, but the man who refuses to be called a hero did something very heroic. Man, I was just passing by leaving my brunch. I seen the smoke. Hey, I just went into survival. Help everybody out, man. That was really it, McRae said. My car was still running. I didn't even turn my car off or nothing. I just ran and ran and started grabbing people. Could you guys hear that okay? Give me a one if you could hear Snoop a second ago. Make sure the sound is working. All right. Give me a one if you could hear Snoop read through that a little bit. All right. So this is the uh, beautiful. Thank you. So this is the house, you know. Um, so this is all that's left of this Kenner home. Fire department says 15 people were rescued from inside the house. No injuries reported. Look at that. I've reported on stories like this over the years, and there have been plenty where you see plenty of brothers doing this for perfect strangers, right? And yet these are the kinds of acts that for some reason go ignored when it comes to black men. So we see these articles, but often they don't really get the fanfare that they deserve. So again, this one is in the description box. I will also put it in the chat just in case you might find good use of it to support, you know, brothers who are doing that work. 
So shout out to Jonathan McRae for his heroism, his sacrifice, his willingness to put his life on the line to save perfect strangers, right? And he definitely says, he says, I'm scared of fires. He said, I, he said, I know I had the opportunity before it got bad. Uh, it was just starting. It was maybe two or three minutes in. So I knew I had time to get in, in there. By the time I got in there, the smoke started getting real thick. I was grabbing everybody and just pulling them and grabbing them dogs and throwing them out on out the door. It was a lot. <laughs> so, you know, shout out to that brother straight up. Uh, that's what's up. And I argue that this is daily. You know, this is what black men do. This is not new, but I still think it deserves the proper respect um, for the sacrifice. Because there's no guarantee he wouldn't have lost his life. None. In those situations, things can happen real fast. And um, I, I support that. And I shout out uh, his willingness to do that. Right. All right. So today, as you guys can see, we're going to talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter. And this comes about. Shout out to Benjamin for the cash app. Much appreciated. This comes about because there was an exchange that happened not too long ago with a good brother of mine and uh, one of the leaders in Black Lives Matter. And uh, this was on the Roland Martin show. Now, I'll probably play clips of it, but I might have to, you know, blur out the clips after the live. And uh, maybe I'll leave the live version on Patreon uh, so you guys can kind of, you know, revisit it. Um, but it was an incredible exchange. That took place. And I think Torin, uh, Torin Walker, journalist, uh, he's been on the show a couple of times, did a fabulous job of actually, you know, articulating what many black men have been saying for years, but haven't had the mic put in our face to do so. So I'm going to go ahead and actually bring the brother in and have him fully introduce himself. Let me go ahead and bring him up. What's up, good brother? What's good, Dr. Johnson? How are you? Oh man, I'm I'm always good when I read one of your pieces, watch one of your videos. Shout out to Torin Walker. Make sure you support both his YouTube channel and go to his Twitter account uh, and check out what he's doing. The brother is fierce. Uh, introduce yourself to, to to the audience again. Tell us what you do. Well, hey everybody, my name is Torin Walker. I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I'm a content creator. I'm also a uh, basically I call myself a digital storyteller. Um, I try to tell stories of our people across any platform I can. I'm also the founder of Context Media Group. And it's a so, pleasure to be back on your show, man. Hey man, it, it seems to me that you're keeping a tradition alive. I think the term used to be journalist. Is that the right pronunciation? I, I, I may not be saying the word right. It, it's, it, it seems like an ancient term. I don't even know if it's still in use, but you seem to have the tradition of it, um, you know, it, it, and you still seem, seem to practice it with some degree of honor. Um, you know, what do you think about this field of journalism, where it's gone today versus what you've been doing? Ooh, that's a heavy question. And um, yeah, unfortunately, sometimes I do get the feeling that journalism is a dead language, but it is still out there. Um, mm -hmm. As far as the field of journalism, we have to start with like traditional journalism or quote unquote mainstream journalism. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, mainstream journalism pretty much is PR at this point. PR and quote unquote, what it used to be called journalism are interchangeable at this point. Mm. Um, you got to go to the ground to get real journalism, whether it's some brother on the block with a phone or somebody mm. who's just not afraid. That's where you got to go for journalism. Alternative places, people like you, people like well, what, I, what I try to do. That's where journalism is, but it's pretty much dead in large buildings. Wow. Yeah, it used to be that the hallmark was you got training at a specific place and you got hired at a huge newspaper and you had a budget and you traveled and you really tried to ex ex excavate stories that you know, uh, that made the institutions uh, quiver, made them scared. 
now, it, like you said, you, you're talking about individual people with phones, right? It's really kind of broken down to almost, uh, you know, the individual's capacity and willingness to sacrifice to tell the truth, as opposed to it being something supported by larger institutions. Um, is that the case or am I missing something? Um, in a, in a large amount of time, in a large amount of places. Yeah, that's true. Um, the, the, fo the focus of journalism used to be, well, it always has been speaking truth to power. That's what it's there for, to be a check against the fourth estate, to be a check against, um, power, whether it's government power or whether it's corporate power. Mm -hmm. Um, ever since 1994, when corporations started buying up journalism and started buying up newspapers and TV, um, stations, mm -hmm. what you're getting is basically recycled corporate narratives and you're getting a lot of content that reinforces what corporations want news or news outlets to say so you're not getting that anymore the mm -hmm. only way you can do that is from outside there are people inside who want to do that work but they're very quiet and they can't really speak out against that or they'll get put out okay and and i'm seeing the same thing in the academy i mean it's just gotten to a point where the kind of scholars i grew up on are few and far between and now it's a matter of of saying whatever you can that makes you uh, interesting, uh, but not something that, that might get you fired. So there's a very kind of thin line and now, you know, and a staunch culture of performing to, um, you know, to whatever base will pay you as opposed to actually having something to say that may go against the grain. Um, and you've been, been an ardent critic of the Academy as well, particularly, you know, the Black Academy, as it were, uh, as far as what people are, what professors in particular, what scholars are willing to say and what they're not. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about that, that, uh, that work, that kind of work you've been doing for some years now? Okay. And I'll try not to be over long, but um, if you go back to the history from the 1970s, when you started seeing like people who were moving in, when, when uh, college campuses began to get more integrated, mm -hmm. a lot of that first wave of scholars who went into the academy came out of the uh, student nonviolent um, tradition or they mm -hmm. came out of the black radical tradition, which was basically either self-educated or they were in very small HBCUs. Mm -hmm. And what happened was they began to radicalize some of the students who were non-black on these campuses. And that put the fear of God in the system. So what they did was they started, the system itself began to like uplift or for lack of a better term, began to endorse certain scholars who happened to be black. That don't mean that they were black scholars. They just were scholars, academics who happened to be black. Mm. And what you got was a shifting and you got a sort of a dilution of the black radical tradition and the black centered tradition into all these different strains like feminism or gender identity and all these things that are not. I'm not trying to say that they're not valid fields, mm -hmm. but so much of black content got filtered into that to a unified black struggle and a unified black idea of black thought got completely diluted with that up until the 1980s was sort of like the last gasp of that and by the mid 90s it was pretty much done mm -hmm. and that's right. where we are now and that's why a lot of theories that you see floating around in black academic circles are get so much credence right now because nobody's there to challenge it now there's something similar that i think has been happening happening with protests and i think it's actually very much tied to the academy as well because a lot of the theories and ideas out of the academy in the 80s have popped up in the future in a, you know in the following uh, generations now Right. And so we're seeing some of that. So here's here's an example. And I think this was off your Twitter page of uh, some of the current state of activism. And I wonder if you could kind of talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing here. But let me see. So here we go.
love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes, baby. Yes. Yeah. I don't see you and no one wants to fuck you. Yes, sir. 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 In your assessment, because I think, and we're going to see a little bit of this later, there are assumptions there out there that this is the front lines. And unless you are out on the street, you know, holding a sign or twerking in front of police officers, you're somehow not relevant. Give us your thoughts on the, the state of activism and um, and how that, you know, wh- wh- what you kind of engage as, as far as that. Well, first of all, I want to thank that sister for continuing activism in the tradition of Rosa Parks. You know, we, we, I don't know where we'd be without sisters like that on the front line. Um, you know, it's interesting because that is a prime example of what passes for activism right now. Um, it's it's heavy because there's this idea that the um, revolution of the D that came out of Marxist theory can be translated into this idea that anything you do that is up, that upsets cultural norms or anything that is transgressive qualifies as a revolution or qualifies as protest. Mm. That is very much a sexual protest. That mm. is very much a protest against uh, societal norms, but it has absolutely nothing to do with why black people were out in the streets for the past four to five years. But because there are no people who are connected to this real struggle out there who are able to kind of guide these things and the people who are moving in front of the cameras and who guide the struggle unfortunately right now go along with that sort of stuff that is considered um legitimate protest and if you push back against that then something's wrong with you some not something's wrong with that right that's where we are right and and the argument also seems to be that if that's not your site of activism that not only is there something wrong with you, but you're not really contributing to the quote unquote struggle. Um, you know, and this is why I started this interview with an appreciation for your approach to journalism. Because if you look at, you know, look historically journalism, uh, even the activists of, of key uh, people in, in, in the legal tradition and the judicial, judicial tradition, these things, there were, there were multiple levels and areas of activism that were not just tied to holding signs in the streets, getting in cameras and yell, you know, it, it wasn't just about that, right? But we've seemed to get to this point where that's become the sole defining, you know, kind of venture in terms of what's considered activism and what isn't. And, and there's definitely somebody that I think you and I both appreciate, or at least appreciated, uh, and, you know, uh, even after his death, who tried to push somewhat along those lines coming from a very grassroots standpoint. Um, let's check him out. I'm not with no organization. I represent the streets. The ones who out there fighting and dying every day. When Mike Brown was just was just a young boy laying on the streets dead, he didn't get none of this. Half of y'all didn't even come support him. It was the streets. CNN didn't occur. Listen, when Mike, when Mike, when Mike Brown was just a young man laying in the streets dead for four hours, it was me, a couple other faces out here, and that's it. One no CNN, one no Jesse, one no Al, one none of that. We gotta start valuing black lives. 
value these young men. They the next presidents, the next governors, the next mayors, and y'all write them off. The elders, they don't even respect us how they, we respect our elders, but respect us too, love us too. We the after crack era. We the AC generation, after crack. Our fathers left us. Our fathers left us. We are the monster y'all created when y'all left those homes and let, the, and let the women raise us. The mothers raised us. I love these women out here. I represent these women out here. I'm going to tell y'all something. All of this cameras and light don't mean nothing. Guess what? Because when all the fame gone, CNN ain't coming us no more, it's us out there going to be fighting and dying every day how it started. So respect us. Love us. Unite with us. Because we're going to be on that front line dying. We are Mike Brown. We Mike Brown. The elders ain't Mike Brown. They're not going to kill you. Don't kill us. We need, we, need some, we, need, we need some type of economical freedom for these people. I'm going to wrap it up. This, this, this must be said. This must be said. I'm going to need everybody out here. This is my idea. Let's play a community ties. Like I pay 10% of their church. If everybody out here will pay 5% of everything they own and put it into a joint account, and I'll start it. I make a thousand dollars a week. I pay hundred. I, I pay fifty dollars every week into an account, so we can build some jobs for these same young men that's dying for y'all every day. That's what we need: economical freedom. Quit spending the black dollars out of the black neighborhood, because every time you spend one dollar out of our neighborhood, they become richer and we become poor. Okay. So now this is interesting. Because he's not only dropped, and he consistently drops truth. If you're not familiar with Darren Seals, I don't know what kind of rock you've been under, but look him up. You can catch plenty of video clips of him right here on YouTube. He's had a lot to say. The brother was 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 on point. But even in this, in him in him advocating for the women in the community, is I found it interesting. You know which groups talked about him, especially upon his death, in a very interesting way. Uh, most particularly the intersectional feminists. You know that really just dismissed him as you know, the misogynist and this and that. And yet here you have him raw, uncut and advocating for a community on a variety of levels. What are your thoughts on, on Darren Seals and, you know, this whole question of activism? Man, first of all, man, thank you for sharing that clip. And I'm a, before I get started, man, I got to say this. One of my greatest regrets as a journalist was not interviewing that brother when I had the chance. Um, I didn't really understand where he was coming from at first because I got caught up in this idea that the people who were speaking were the people who I needed to listen to. Yes. And um, I just I just saw him pop up on Twitter every now and then. And he was the right. first person that I saw uh, basically ringing that alarm saying that, yo, this is not what you what you think is going on is not what's going on. And I kind of ignored it because his language was real cool. I won't say coarse, but it was real rough. It was real direct. Mm -hmm. And um by the time I started really paying attention to what he was saying and getting through some of the directness of it, um, and I was getting ready to start to reach out to him, man, he was gone. Yeah. Um, so shout out, one, much respect to that brother Darren Seals and his family and his people. But to answer your question, man, um, that energy right there, the things he was saying and the energy that he put out, put the fear of God in a lot of people and not just white people. I'm gonna say that like this. Mm -hmm. um, what happened in Ferguson, could not have happened if brothers like that were not moved out of the way one way or another. I'll say that okay. if he had been allowed to have the platform he deserved to have, a lot of the things we're dealing with now with this confusion along amount in a lot of these movement spaces would not be happening. Mm -hmm. I know I, I really feel that. But um, to reset your to, re, to answer your question, um, 
I feel like for people to really get to the core of where we are when it comes to like protests and what legitimate protest looks like, you got to talk to the people on the ground. And Darren Seals represented people on the ground. It doesn't matter where you're in Ferguson, whether you're in Baltimore, whether you're in Baton Rouge, whether you're in Atlanta, it doesn't matter where you are. There are always people who are not in front of the camera who are actually doing work or they've had their back pushed against the wall till they're ready to, to, to ready to stand on their feet and move things. You can need you can you can respond to that one or two days. You can let them speak, give them the opportunity to speak. Or if you're afraid of what they're saying, you try to ease them out of the way so you can take over the microphones that they've already built. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's where protests and I think that's where activism, quote unquote, is right now with us. And it's sad. Yeah. Especially when you factor in how he died and how a, a very small number of other brothers died in the movement. And when you talk about death in regard to BLM, those are the those are the, the, the stories that come up, but somehow they're, they're still not leading stories for some reason. But, uh, you know, SEALs and a number of other black males were, uh, you know, were found dead in questionable circumstances. I believe they were murdered. Um, but it, and I think it had a lot to do with the truth that they were putting out there that folks didn't want. Um, but I do need to say this as well for the brothers who are watching this. Torin, uh, if you go to his YouTube channel, has done a, a brilliant video on the origins of the Manosphere as well as uh, a number of different things in regard to black men. There's something you and uh, Hood Scholar did together a while back uh, advocating for fathers. And this is something that, that I think goes along with where I want to take this as we watch some of these upcoming video clips. You, you advocate for black men in a way that we don't hear about in media. You know, the work you did, you know, really bringing forth black men, you know, the fathers of victims to police violence. And you talk a little bit about that before we delve into some of this Roland Martin interview. Yeah, that was that was an initiative that I was invited out to Ferguson by um, Dr. Hood Scholar. It was basically a roundtable for black men who've lost their sons to police violence. Um, first of all, I was really honored that they thought of me to bring me out there. So I came out there and I basically met a lot of these brothers. You know, there was Mike Brown Sr., um, some of the brothers whose names I won't get all together, um, Oscar Grant's um, family, people, pretty much all the, all the all the young black men that you've seen and stories you've heard about over the past few years. Um, the, the reason for that was because a lot of men who have dealt with this grief and dealt with this pain have been given the short shrift by media. You know, you've yeah. seen so much attention on black women, mothers, and that's deservedly so. Mm -hmm. But most of these black boys and black men who died have fathers as well. And right. a lot of these men were active in their lives and they're going through some of the same pain and some of the same trauma that these mothers have, but there was just no focus on that. So I went out there and I think that was some of the most powerful and it was almost also some of the hardest journalism that I've ever done to chair this panel and hear these black men talk about the grief that they deal with every day, knowing that a lot of their namesakes. And that's the other thing, too. A lot of these men, their sons were named after them and they had to see their sons ripped out of this life and ripped out of this existence yeah. and see a part of you completely destroyed and removed from 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 this earth. And you're dealing with that pain with no recompense, you know, that pain with nobody to really talk to about that. And hearing those stories, man, and hearing how these people deal with that and these men, it was a lot to deal with. But yeah. I was, I was, I'm glad I was able to do that. But the sad thing about it is, I shouldn't have had to be the only person to go out there to gather these men together to do to have this conversation. Right. It should be happening on a regular basis. But that's yeah. what happens when you're a black man. You know, we're seen as not having any kind of real feelings. We're seen as not having any kind of internal monologue that be, needs to be dealt with any kind of physical, psychological trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's sad, man. It was, it was a heavy thing. But I'm glad to do it. Absolutely. Shout out to you on that. And again, support Torrin Walker's channel. 
check out his work, check out what he's been doing. Um, now, tell us a little bit how this interview on Roland Martin came about. Uh, what was this about? Well, the interview came about because I got I was invited to be on Roland's show mm -hmm. and it was supposed to be about just the regular topics, you know, um, police, um, police misconduct, uh, voting, electoral politics, politics in general, and just culture. And while we're in the middle of the show, there was supposed to be me and a few other guests on. One of them, um, I think, dropped out. And then an alert went out on our phones to say we're going to get another guest that's coming in and we're going to be talking about BLM and the controversy and some of the suits flying around about BLM and the um, leadership. Okay. I didn't think I thought it was just going to be a, just a monologue where we all chopped it up. And then it turned out that one of the people who used to be connected to the BLM leadership was going to be on there. I didn't know that. And mm. when I saw that, yeah, I, it, it, I literally I saw it as we were going on. And, you know, that scene in. um you know that scene in the Ten Commandments where Pharaoh tells um, Moses to get your people and go, and <laughs> Moses starts talking about the Lord has delivered my people into my hand. <laughs> okay, I was like, man, look. So <laughs> when we went live, um, I'm sitting over here jumping like this. I'm like, okay, all right, all right, I'm ready. And so when we went live, and they, the camera went to me, I went off completely with no notes. I went off off the dome with what I had what I had to say because the questions I had were questions I've had for years. And there were questions that people who have been part of that group, a part of that mm -hmm. organization mm -hmm. and been kicked to the curb or been just left on reef basically years had. So I just asked straight up, you know, what's going on, what's going on with the donations y'all received? Um, how come there's so, there seems to be so much disarray in the leadership? How come people who have risked their freedom and their lives, how come they can't get any sort of understanding or they can't get any answers when they ask what's going on? How come there's no support? Right. And if you go and look at the video, you can see I got a bunch of answers that didn't really answer the question. And I had to ask the same question like two times before I was kind of like before they had to be bumped the segment. So that's pretty much what it was. I just went off the dome with, you know, things people wanted to say, things I had, think questions I had. And I just let the people speak and I let people make their own decisions on what they got. So that, that was the, that, that was the coldest part about it because you know you really feel like over the years there's been a kind of barrier when it comes to mainstream media in, in terms of how organizations like BLM are even questioned publicly and so when you when you can you know when you came at it the way you did I, you know to me it felt like you were speaking for you know a, you know a lot of people who've never been able to be in the space in a public setting to ask those questions and put those ideas on the table it's like they've been you know protected from having to, to address those kind of uh, those kind of things. So let I me mean, I'm gonna pull up uh, the first clip of this. Um, we'll just kind of walk, walk walk through it. Conversation for a while. Um, we're we're nine years deep into this now. Um, ever since Ferguson started, um, there were brothers like Darren Seals and people who were on the ground who would call out some of these things and he got silenced. There were people who were close to the people who were connected to the ground who talked about these issues and he either got silenced or they either got marginalized or pushed completely out the way. Nobody said anything. And all of a sudden, after people in other cities have said this, this said, have said they had these conversations as well, again, nobody said anything. Nobody had anything to say until all of a sudden the story came out about $90 million and nobody said anything about, and people saw houses and mansions getting built. So my question is, what's happening now to make people so upset about the leadership that people weren't listening to nine years ago? And why is what, what's happening today? Fair use. Sure. So we're actually... Um... Uh, stepping into 10 years. Black Lives Matter was birthed July 13th, 2013, which is the day that George Zimmerman was acquitted in the murder of Dray Trayvon Martin. Um, so we've been doing this work. Um, 
people like me who've been on the ground since day one, who were people who were in Ferguson, who were people who were in, um, you know, Baltimore and Los Angeles and all of the place, places that you saw uprising, right? Who were people who were just regular folks. Um, I'm just a mama. I'm a mama of three kids. I never took a check, right? Um, we've been saying things, but also I think more importantly, we viewed Black Lives Matter as a movement. Um, so I've been, um, less vocal about what's been happening inside of Black Lives Matter that I frankly have nothing to do with. I don't know about the, I do now, but at the moment, at the time, I didn't know anything about dollars coming in or about, um, you know, who's getting paid what. My concern and what I felt to be my sacred duty was to do work that makes the world safer for my children. And so when you're talking about people saying things, I think people were saying things, but more importantly, I think that the people, the boots on the ground were most concerned with doing something, most Okay, here's the second part of that. There's three clips. Standing the historical record that it's from the inside that movements most often destroy themselves or, or are destroyed. And so it was important to me and many, many others um, that we continue to do the work and not allow fights from the inside to destroy a movement. But I, I hear what you're saying, but my point is this. I understand that there's going to be disagreements, there's going to be situations where people have uh, differences of opinion on how movement works. I'm saying that the conversations that you're having now, people inside of the movement who broke away from the movement have had these conversations for like the past five to six years, and there was no real movement from the inside to have these conversations. It was like either marginalize these people, shut them up, keep it moving, and nobody said anything. So my question again is, how come it takes something like outside people coming in, like the New York Times and all these quote-unquote non-black um, um, information um, portals to be able to start up, have the conversation instead of going to the people who believe in Black Lives Matter and saying, this is what's going on, this is what we're dealing with, this is what we're about, instead of waiting for it to happen from the outside. You hear what I'm saying? Okay, last clip. It's my, my position as someone who is just boots on the ground. You know, now I'm director of Black Lives Matter grassroots and I am boots on the ground. Right. My concern is about the struggle rather than exposing. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time um, focusing on what infrastructures look like when our people are literally being gunned down in the streets. And so the focus hasn't been where are the um, criticisms coming from. It doesn't mean that we've ignored criticisms. There have been um, all kinds of tables created and conversations created and weekly calls created to address what you're talking about. But my primary work, and for many of us, I'm thinking about Mama Paula and the Josephs and people like Marquel Bridges, our primary work is really doing the work rather than um, simply addressing criticisms of the way the but work you, is moving. You, do you, but I'm, I, I you to, what I'm trying to get you to understand is this. People from the outside, and, I'm, and let me preface it by saying this. My background is in journalism. I was working, I was writing for Huffington Post when all this stuff was going on. I was in Ferguson, I was in some of these cities. I saw this stuff up close. When you have people who are risking their lives 
and risking their freedom to go ahead and protest against for black people and black lives. And then all of a sudden, when something happens to them or they end up getting years in prison, like someone like Josh Williams in Ferguson, or you see people who are actually doing, you know, getting injured when people are getting shot in the eye with beanbag bullets and things like this. And they look for somebody to bring aid to them or they're looking for somebody to deal with, like, you know, legal aid to get them out of prison or legal aid or hospitals to take care of their bills and they're risking everything. And they see people pulling in $90 million off the death of a black man who died in the street. Two of them, actually, Mike Brown and George Floyd. And they see millions, hundreds of $90 million, at least, that we know of coming into an organization. And then we don't hear anything when they want accountability. And these people are still struggling. And then the next thing you know, we see people dancing in the street. And we see them um, popping champagne on a, on a mansion in front of a, uh, on a desk at a mansion. You have to understand that's a disconnect between people who are living hand in the mouth but still believe in black lives and the people who are supposed to be the leadership for these organizations. And then when you try to get answers, nobody says anything. That's what the point I'm trying to make. There's so a serious disconnect. Now, that was fire. That was absolute fire. I had not seen BLM held to task uh, in, in any major platform, uh, especially to that degree. Give us your thoughts watching that at this point. What, what does that bring to mind for you? Oh, man. Um, you know what? This is the first time I've watched that whole clip in the, in a few days, all those clips together. I didn't even realize that I was just flowing like that. I did not... Um, I had no notes. Like I said, I, it, it got sprung on me five minutes beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I just let everything flow out of me, the questions that I had. Um, and I don't have too much to say about what I said because I don't think I did anything wrong. I just asked the questions everybody has. Mm -hmm. What was interesting after I gave her, what, th I guess three or four chances to answer the question, I never, in my opinion, I feel like I didn't really get any straight answers for anything, which is why I kept hitting it over and over. And I was trying to make her understand how people from the outside feel about this. Um, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad that that's out there so people can pay attention to it and they can maybe get an understanding of what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. But I really wish, honestly, I wish I would have gotten better answers. That's really what I wish I would have gotten out of all that. Well, I've talked about on this channel, uh, you know, when, the, when BLM did reveal where some of that money went to, what I noticed in their reports was that very little of that went to chapters that had most particularly heterosexual black males involved in the leadership. Uh, very few of that of, of them did. I, li I literally went through and showed the actual reports of where that money went to the extent that it was made, you know, transparent. So that was one of my issues. And I think part of what you said kind of challenged them on multiple levels, including some of the elements like that. Um, you know, so, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I appreciated what you said, because, again, you're bringing these elements uh, to the source and you're challenging, you know, this question of how BLM has functioned, uh, because I think in many ways, what we're seeing here wasn't just, an, you know, the kind of verbal back and forth uh, between a journalist and an activist. What I saw was you actually putting the agenda of black men being used and profited off of on the table. And on top of that, you're also challenging uh, a style of activism that became popular in 2014 and 2015, most particularly after the death of Michael Brown. It became popular, and so many of us, it took us a while to catch up and really figure out what was going on, right? I mean, when I first heard of BLM, it was really at the death of Michael Brown, and, and honestly, I didn't know it was an organization, you know what I mean? Because I heard it chanted in the street, so I thought it was just, because the chant went from hands up, don't shoot, to Black Lives Matter, you know what I mean? And so in the protests that I was involved in, even here in Fresno, that's what I heard. I heard it went from hands up, don't shoot. Then it was just black. So I thought Black Lives Matter was just the chant. And then when I found out it was an organization, again, I didn't think much of it. 
I just thought, okay, it's another organization that it is what it is. It was only when I started to really, you know, really look at the, 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 the video and the clips and the interviews taking place in Ferguson, where I started to see this ground shift, right, of who was being interviewed, who was allowed to speak for the organization, who was securing donations for the organization, and less and less of it was going to those on the ground. And this is something that I've talked to about with uh, Nyota Uhura, who I've had on the show, who's an on-ground activist in, in, uh, in Ferguson. Uh, and she talked about this at length. I've had her on the show a couple of times and she talked about how they kind of usurped this. She was right there with Darren Seals talking about that, that kind of process. And so it started to make more sense. And then I ran, that's when I was, uh, a brother named Marshall, shout out to Marshall, uh, sent me some Darren Seals clips. And I was like, oh, so Darren ended up cementing, you know, some of the things that I was, I was suspicious of, you know what I mean? And it kind of went from there. Um, so, you know, I'm still surprised how much of that discussion it, it doesn't get, you know, doesn't really reach the light of day, as it were. And so that's what I think, uh, you know, I saw going on in that interview. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, the way you laid it out is absolutely right. Um, when I first became aware of the killing of Mike Brown and when I first saw the protests erupted that erupted in Ferguson, if you go back and look, the first thing you saw before you saw any sort of chance at all were people going head to head with the cops there. That's when you saw like the, the images mm -hmm. that have become cemented in the public mm -hmm. mind about Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Brothers like Marshall um, picking up the tear gas the, with the sparks flying out of it and throwing it back. People, you know, basically snatching the mic from CNN and basically cussing out Don Lemon and people like that because they wanted to get their story out. Once, once that became known to the public, then you started hearing the chants like hands up, don't shoot, which I believe if I'm not mistaken was Darren Seals, the group that he was part of. Mm. The people who were marching up on the police with their hands up, basically going hands up, don't shoot. Mm -hmm. Those are the very first images I saw. Mm -hmm. Then you, like you said, it began to move into Black Lives Matter. And as you said, people thought it was a chant. Mm -hmm. What I think happened was the people who were on the ground in Ferguson were poor and working class people. They were hustlers. They were nine to five people. They were blue collar people. They were people who live hand to mouth. You know what I mean? They're trying to get through every week. They're trying to pay their rent every month. They're trying to focus on that. This pulled them out of their element and this pulled them out of themselves to get into something bigger than them. And I don't even think they realized how big it was going to be. Mm -hmm. But the people who did realize how big it was going to be were the people who swooped into Ferguson maybe like a couple months later after it became a sustained protest and it became mm. news and it mm. became an everyday thing. And it looked like it was going to become not just a protest, but, a, but the beginnings of a revolution. Mm. That's when you started seeing people who began to grab the mic at CNN and in these major outlets who weren't as who were far more polished than Darren Seals and like Sister Nyota and people like that who were just raw straight off the off the cuff off the dome. Mm -hmm. That scared the hell out of that scared the hell out of people sitting in their living rooms watching the TV. So what they had to do was grab people who were a lot more polished, a lot more milk toast. That's how you saw people who were showing up and they were able to articulate these things in academic terms and shift the conversation away from the anger of the people on the ground to the academic think tank sort of speak that people that makes people feel comfortable and makes academics feel comfortable and makes white liberals feel comfortable. Right. And the people who were doing that were absolutely not the people who started that protest. Yeah. So that's what happened. And that's how the conversation got to be, began to shift away from police brutality and institutionalized racism into these ideas about gender and these ideas about sex and about who should lead and who deserves to lead. And that's what happened. And that's what happens every time. Tell me as a journalist, when did the money part of it really be, hit your desk? Like, when did you become aware that there's a question to be asked about these donations? When I started really paying attention to it was um, it was not in Ferguson. 
it was in Baton Rouge after um, Alton Sterling got killed. Mm. When Alton Sterling was killed, that was the first time you started seeing some of the energy from Ferguson or from the Black Lives Matter organization begin to move into different cities and everything. Because at the time, I thought Black Lives Matter was was a Ferguson-based movement. Okay. When I saw some of the people who had sort of made their name in Ferguson started showing up in Baton Rouge. And let me preface that by saying this first. I first paid attention to that because some of the people who got prominent off of Ferguson were people who I was talking to on a regular basis because I was still filing stories in for Huffington Post and I was trying to reach out to them so I could get the inside information because I thought they were the people who were leading these movements. Some of the people who I got was, was used to in Ferguson showed up in Baton Rouge. And this was after I had spoken to people in Baton Rouge who were doing grassroots work. And some of these people had specifically said, we don't want anybody from outside coming in because we want to keep this a Baton Rouge based movement because we can tell our story better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I know for a fact that conversation went back to some of the people in Ferguson and some of the people who had made their name there. And there was sort of a conscious decision for people in St. Louis to not go let let Baton Rouge handle their thing. Mm -hmm. And there was a protest that happened in Baton Rouge on a Saturday night. And there was a live stream that went out on that protest. And the live stream was done by people who I saw got prominent in Ferguson. Mm. And there were people like your man in the blue vest. There were people like a couple of these women who made their name in Ferguson, who were leading and walking with a cell phone. And I'm talking and I'm thinking to myself, how are these people in Ferguson? Mm. Nobody else is doing anything and they're leading this protest. Mm-hmm. And they were specifically told not to show up there. So then my, the question began, how did they get out there? Mm. Then the question began, who funded that? Mm-hmm. All right. And that's when I started looking at if you're a grassroots activist and I was out there and I saw how people were living, you don't have jet plane money, at least as far as I know. So how did you show up there? Who mm-hmm. did that? And then that's when everything went over when the arrest happened. And then that's when it became national news. And then the world media picked it up. And that's when I really started getting my eyebrow raised. Now, I've always been of the position that you have a, a grassroots movement of people that want to see change. And then you had this organization of people who were a bit savvy with nonprofits, they were a bit savvy at setting up paperwork, you know what I mean? And I think, you you know, we're able to come in and on a professional white collar level, absorb some of the discussion, absorb a lot of the resources. But, you know, I do want to differentiate between the two, you know, in, in essence, if we were going to, you know, really water it down or boil it down, the difference between BLM, the organization and the movement of people that wanted to see change. Do you make that, that differentiation yourself? Oh, I do. Absolutely. Um, I say it all the time, and this is something that I say sometimes to people, and I say it in a joking way, but it's serious. Black lives matter, but the organization doesn't. And what that means is the concept of black lives matter, that you are a black human being. You deserve to have life. You deserve to go about your day. You deserve to go through life and live out your life unattacked, unmolested, and not having your skin color be the deciding factor on whether you live or you die because of state power. That's a real thing that matters. However, we have to talk about something that I know you know is an academic called language capture. Mm. It's where you take a term that may be neutral mm-hmm. and then you add meaning to it that completely changes the meaning of the original neutral term. Okay. So in the pub, in the mind of the public, 
the idea of Black Lives Matter is inextricably tied to that organization. And if you say that term, your mind automatically makes the link that saying Black Lives Matter means you support that organization. Right. And if you put, and it's really, it was really genius marketing from a from a branding standpoint. Because mm -hmm. if you push back against the, if you push back against the the idea of Black Lives Matter in the mind of the public, in the collective mind of the public, it makes it seem like you're saying that you don't believe that Black people deserve to live and Black people do not deserve to have uh, productive lives and live out their lives. I mean, it's genius. It's genius, yeah. but it, it but it's frightening because if you push back against the organization, like I said, those two ideas are so intertwined that they're almost impossible to extricate from each other at this point. So yeah, while I agree that absolutely there mm -hmm. are grassroots people who deserve to be supported in the mind of the public, again, anything that looks like it's supporting a pushback against police brutality or a pushback against white supremacy and anti-blackness in their mind assumes that they think it's part of Black Lives Matter. And because of all the screwy, all the stuff that's going on with that organization, it makes people hesitant to support anybody because it's not, there's no way to sort it out. Yeah, I saw you make a, you made a statement about that on, on Twitter a while back, and you were actually saying your concern was how this whole situation with Black Lives Matter, and we'll get into their finances in a little bit, in a, in a little bit uh, but how that was going to affect organizations on the ground who really do need support and are really are advocating for people uh, beyond, you know, this just kind of abusive use of blackmail death uh, you know, for profit. And, 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 and you know, and that, that brings us to this whole other element of BLM that few anticipated. Uh, like I said earlier, many of us, by the time we found out it was an organization, it was kind of like, okay, I think many assumed it was in the tradition of the NAACP, you know, a, a number of other organizations that, you know, had a general stance on the uplift of black community. But, you know, then we started to see this gender dynamic that I don't think we'd ever seen uh, you know, really happened on this scale when it came to an organization that was really jumping into this conversation about police homicide, most particularly of black men. And that's one of the things I appreciated about how you handled this interview. You put it on the table. This wasn't an arbitrary, you know, police killing black people. You talked specifically about black men. And then you identified the key black men where we saw, you know, these huge blowups in terms of activism. You know, I, I was glad you put that on the table because people kind of try to gender wash that and, and just really kind of downplay the fact that it was black men. And BLM has done a lot of a lot of that, too. But going further, we started we started to see this hostility toward black men, most particularly straight black men, not only in the organization, but even in terms of the rhetoric. And then, it's the, you know, these whole statements that black men would report coming out from BLM, uh, at least you know under the table, not in the, the national eye where you couldn't take a leadership position. I've interviewed. Uh, brothers who led chapters of BLM, uh, heterosexual black men who were not recognized by the primary, you know, base organization. Any thoughts about this, this kind of hostile gender kind of element of it that we had not seen really take place in an organization that, at, that was supposedly advocating for black lives? I, I, any thoughts about that dimension of it? Oh, I got thoughts. And I also got to preface it with a story. Okay. Um, I first became, I, I first got my eyebrow raised about that um during a a strategy meeting that happened i guess it had to be around 2017 mm -hmm. and this was in atlanta this was a um there was there was some turmoil and there was some tension going on in atlanta between um the quote unquote official black lives matter chapter and another chapter that apparently had taken on the name of black lives matter greater atlanta if i'm not mistaken mm. there were two separate chapters but they were at odds with each other in the city and one of the women who became known nationally as one of the three women, one of the three black women who founded Black Lives Matter, came to this, came to, flew into the city, I guess, to basically 
clear out some things. Mm. Um, and she made a comment that struck me as very odd because she came to basically clear up in her mind, in her, in her words, to clear up some of the misconceptions about the organization. Mm. She said quite a few things, but one thing that stuck out to me was that she said, I want to clear up the idea that Black Lives Matter is an organization that's trying to um, push men out of the limelight uh, of leadership. And she said, well, that part is kind of true in a, a little bit. And she kind of made it, said it in a joking way. And some of the people laughed, but I was back in the cut like, like this, this is, mm -hmm. what, and I don't, and I don't really have a poker face, which is why I don't play poker that much. But <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say anything, but I heard that. And I didn't, you know, it kind of struck me, it kind of, it kind of struck me as like a, like a real, like an off note, like you listen to a symphony and somebody made a, a bad note. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after the, after the conversation was over, I went over and I spoke to her and I was getting ready to ask her about that. Right. And you ever see somebody you talk, you ever see somebody you try to talk to and you look into their eyes and it feels like there's no there there. Oh, okay. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you're having a conversation, but they're not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And it was just a very strange energy. And mm -hmm. I couldn't I couldn't get any straight answers. And apparently that seems to be a trend. <laughs> but um, I couldn't get any definite answers. And it was sort of like a very, very strange conversation. So I left it alone. But anyway, that was when I first started paying attention to that. And then as time went on, I started looking at some of the things that showed up on their platform. And I started looking at how some of the messaging and some of the chapters and some of their messaging just from their site and from their outreach started saying it stopped being Black Lives Matter. Then it slowly became to be um, all Black Lives Matter. Mm. And then it became this thing where it was like, you know, all lives matter, not all lives matter, but gender nonconforming, everybody yeah. else's life matters, which is again, true. But the tone of that movement began to shift from focusing on policy against police brutality and policy against white supremacist um, policing into all these ideas around gender and who deserves to lead, and who does not deserve to lead, who's in, who needs to be in front and all these sorts of things. And it became more focused on depending on your gender identity, that's who deserves to lead outside of your skill set and outside of your capability. And let me say that by saying this. If you have a skill set, if uh -huh. you have a talent that puts you into a leadership position or you have something that you can contribute to a movement, I personally don't give a damn what your gender identity is. If you're a black man and you're competent, if you are a gender non-conforming person and you're, comp and you're competent, if you're a woman and you're competent and you know uh -huh. what you're doing, I really don't give a damn who's out front. Uh -huh. but to completely exclude a group of men and a group of people because they happen to be cishet men and cishet black men from being in a leadership role something's mm -hmm. clearly off of that and something that needs to be addressed so to, that, to give you all i gave you all that backstory to tell you that was the first time i saw that 2017 and then i just watched how things begin to progress yeah yeah no it, it's it's absolutely, absolutely the case and, and again this is why i want to keep you know how keep highlighting the role of the academy in this because a lot of this came you know kind of evolved out of intersectional feminism intersectional black feminism uh, intersectionality is a concept that kind of evolved out of that into this kind of language where uh, black men in particular uh, were, were being retroactively historically punished for, you know, these kind of perceived deeds in the past. And now it's women and LGBT that need to take leadership and, and black males, you know, you know, heterosexual black males needed to be silent. They needed to stand, stand on the side. They needed to take leader, you know, follow leadership. This was actually a piece I did uh, some years ago. Um, and I'm not going to read through it, but I will put the link up for you guys to see it. But this is a piece I did on my blog. Uh, this was probably, yeah, this is October 2nd, 2017. I call it Silly Rabbit Tricks Are For Kids. 
um, you know, BLM was not for you after all. And this is interesting because when you actually see there's an article uh, that you can kind of look up yourself. Uh, I have the link right there. I won't go to it now. I wasn't planning to do this, but you can check it out for yourself. But the quote I pulled out of this article came from Opal Tometi, one of the founders of BLM. And she said, contrary to the widely held misconceptions that Black Lives Matter was founded solely for men or boys, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and I created Black Lives Matter for Black women. Now, the last time I went to look at the article that this was sourced out of, that quote had been removed, right? But this was just, this was around the time when I started to hear more people talking about uh, the whole kind of image of the, uh, the, the black nuclear family as far as the BLM website and their kind of identification with this new idea of family, this new idea that was supposed to usurp what we'd grown familiar with and was supposed to, you know, take on this whole different bent. I don't know if you are you familiar with that, that whole discussion? Yeah. Um, I think at one point there was, um, if you went to the Black Lives Matter um, organization website, there was a section in their uh, mission statement that said one of their goals is to disrupt the uh, the idea of the nuclear family. Right. I don't have the I don't have the verbatim statement in front of me, but I do know that once people began to question that statement, it got removed from the um, it got removed from the site. I think it might have been Joy Reid or somebody who mentioned that, mm -hmm. um, and it got pulled down. It got pulled down. Right. Um, yeah. My thoughts on that are this. Um, this whole idea of black men being um, being patriarchs and being dominant in movement spaces mm -hmm. um, in the modern day, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but you have to trace all this back to a book called The Dialectic of Sex by a feminist named Shulamith Firestone. Mm -hmm. um, came out in 1972, if I'm not mistaken. And the most important part of that book is the fifth chapter where she talks about black masculinity and black hegemony and black um, and black uh, families. Uh, that book and that chapter is sort of like a cornerstone um, book when it comes to the idea of black patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And here's the interesting, interesting thing about this. Shulamith Firestone was a feminist who was it. And I'm probably going to make this mistake. Usually the Princeton or Yale. I'm not sure which. Mm -hmm. Apparently, she went to a Black Panther rally in um 72 someplace like that in one year she went to a black panther rally and she saw black men in berets you know the, the classic black panther gear black berets black leather jackets holding shotguns and rifles and everything and she got some literature my guess is something about being in that space scared the hell out of her or it made her feel some kind of way and instead of engaging with those brothers to get into their philosophy the fact that it made her feel some kind of way seeing these black men with guns made her feel like that black men want to emulate white male patriarchy or mm -hmm. trying to tie black men with weapons into the South, in, into this uh, sort of like this phallic symbol or sort of this surrogate phallus, surrogate phallus, which that had nothing to do with it for black men. It was about survival and self-defense. And I think that's mm -hmm. what happened. If you mm -hmm. go to the fifth, if you go to the fifth chapter of that book, you can read it for yourself. Yeah. And I think a lot of people that filtered through the Academy and a lot of people who ended up going into black feminism use that book. People like Michelle Wallace, People yep. like Bell Hooks, they read that book and they use that as sort of a template to craft their theories on. And I mm -hmm. think that's why we got us to this point now, to, to the point where that theory that black men want to emulate white patriarchy is filtered through the academy right. into lay conversation, into right. academic spaces, and then into activist spaces, because a lot of people who control activist spaces come through the academy. And yes. we're dealing with what, two generations of this sort of philosophy. So now here we are. Yes. And, and, you know, which speaks to why the Academy is, is, is important to watch 
in regard to these kind of conversations because it might be general it might not take place for another generation but these ideas don't come out of nowhere right mm-hmm. they don't they don't fall out of the sky they're actually they've actually been in motion for quite a while and i'm glad you brought up michelle wallace because her book book black macho in the myth of the superwoman played an incredible role in this dynamic too this this kind of embedding of a certain hostility toward black men even to the point where when she announced that you know this was not something like some of the stories she pulled uh, about black men were not uh, accurately reported on. She did a whole kind of uh, push in the early 90s to really acknowledge that this was this was propped up in many ways. It wasn't based on factual information, which you even had black women sociologists pointing out when her book was on the stands, and yet people ignored that. A lot of that needs to be called into question, but it's rolled into so many other things that uh, when I've talked to my students sometimes, when I've introduced and talked about Michelle Wallace, they don't even know who she is. You know what I mean? So it's interesting to see how this has come about. But going back to the interview, um, you know, you did with Roland Martin. Now, Roland Martin, right after that exchange, he, he, put, he, he called out this whole question of not holding other black organizations accountable when it comes to funding. Um, you know, whereas, whereas, you know, after, you know, this much time, I thought BLM, especially in terms of what's been revealed, deserved a little more analysis. Roland kind of deflected a bit and talked a little bit about other black organizations. Um, you know, and, and then after that, one of the things I noticed was you got a response again, and I do believe this is uh, directed at you uh, from um, Dr. Melina Abdullah, you know, who you engaged with. She had some, some things to say on Twitter, uh, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. So uh, there are two short clips. Here's the first. Then expected um, live is to say, you know, middle fingers to um, toxic men, because they're mostly men, who come at us and say that we can't eat cheese and olives and um, drink champagne like ever, right? Like, if you do, then you must not really believe in the movement, not really be about business, not really be about doing the work. And also, I want to question you. I ain't never seen you on no front line. You talking about it. You're a journalist. What do you do other than hop on Roland Martin and talk shit about people? Sorry, mama, that just came out. Talk stuff about people who are actually doing work. What do you do? Middle fingers to you. Middle fingers to you. I dare you to come out in the streets and say it to my face. I dare you because you ain't never been in the streets. You talking about you were in Ferguson. Fool, I was in Ferguson. I was in Ferguson and Ferguson was in 2014. That was nine years ago. Where are you at now, homie? I dare you to come out every Wednesday to the End Police Association's rally. I dare you to come out and say it to my face and see what happens. I dare you, I dare you. I'm not afraid of you um, and your Twitter following. Nobody's scared of you, right? Nobody. And that's, toxic masculinity i know toxic men hate to hear that term but it's toxic masculinity and you are a misogynist because the only people you drag and i'm talking to all of y'all of your ilk right the only people you drag are women you ain't said nothing to the naacp who raised way more money than black lives matter ever did you ain't saying nothing to Derek johnson right you ain't saying nothing to the urban league you're not dragging any of the men who get paid um six-figure salaries and fly and private jets you only want to attack 
the black mamas who do the work and don't drag in big salaries. You should, what you're saying is I never get to stop and drink. Forget you, middle fingers to you and come and say it to my face and see what happens. See what happens if you come and say it to my face, right? You won't because you don't believe in being on front lines. You just believe in um, being on Twitter. I bet you, I bet you I'm stronger than your little Twitter thumbs. Bet you I'm stronger than your little Twitter thumbs. Okay. So, you know, while you respond to that, um, I want to kind of put something into perspective um, that I think you raised in your talk on Roland Martin. But go ahead and tell us, what are your responses to what you just heard? Oh, man. Um, I guess she didn't see me in Ferguson because I was um, on the ground talking to people who were there. I don't know if she was in the Hilton or wherever she was, but maybe that's why she didn't see me. Um, also, yeah, true. Ferguson, Mike Brown died in 2014, but I've been to Ferguson in 2018, 2019, and 2021. Last time I was there, that was to host the um, Black Father Summit. And it's, you know what, man, I'm surprised that someone who's supposed to be an academic is talking that greasy. I never attacked that woman. I never called her out of her name. I never insulted her, at least in my opinion, but I guess in this day and times that we live in now, in this academic world, asking somebody direct questions is toxic masculinity. I guess that makes me Mr. From Color Purple, I guess. I don't know what kind of way they're thinking. Or I guess me asking you what happened to, you know, what's wrong with the, or what's wrong with the leadership? That means I'm Bernie Mac from head of state, knocking people upside the head, getting off the train. I don't know what, I don't know where they, where they think that from. Um, I, I, that's so wild, man, that it's hard for me to even figure out how to respond to that. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. What I can say is, um, as far as me going after people, if you, I know it, not everybody may follow me on my social media, but I've been very vocal about these organizations, whether it's politicians, um, organizations who claim to be for us, whether it's the Congressional Black Caucus, whether it's the NAACP, whether it's the Urban League. I've talked about them and I'll critique people who um, try to make these statements where black people feel like they're not getting what they say they're supposed to be getting or what they're supposed to be doing all the time. The difference is the NAACP whether you agree with them or not, has solid leadership that you can go to if you have grievances. The Urban League and other organizations have a track record of people that, uh, that you can go to, that you can reach out to if you have grievances. The Black Lives Matter organization is so convoluted that you don't that you don't know who is who and you don't know who is what, and they don't even have a definite um, they don't even have a definite plan of action about what they stand for for you to even to redress your grievances to. I, you know, and it's just wild her talking about come saying in her face. I don't know where that came from. I mean, I said it to your face on a national talk show and you didn't have anything to say. So why go on IG away from everybody else to do all this? And you still didn't answer the questions I asked. As far as you, as far as you, as far as this idea of black women not being able to relax and eat cheese and drink champagne, sis, y'all can drink champagne and eat cheese wherever you want. I just think it's real funny to do that on a tombstone where people who are trying to figure out how to live can't do it anywhere else. God, the people damn. who are on the ground don't have time to do that. They're trying to. They're trying to. They're trying to stay alive. You know what I mean? And I. And that was on the. And that was on the one year anniversary of the George Floyd uprising. How much? Wow. Did, how much cheese did his family get to eat? Wow. Wow. In a mansion. <sighs> so are you mad? At, so are you upset at me for asking the question? Or are you upset at everybody else for asking more? Well, I gotta ask 
since I have you, and the, these are these are subjects that you're you know far more uh, aware of in terms of uh, you know doing the research that you do. So we know that lately, right? There's been a whole conversation about um, Black Lives Matter going uh, bankrupt, right? Uh, this is actually not the one I want. Hold on, hold on one second. Um, I'm gonna pull up another one. But this whole question about bankruptcy, this whole question about um, you know the state of the the affair, where where the resources have gone, we know there's a lot of tumultuous kind of things going on within the organization. There's a lawsuit, of course, um, you know, internal to the organization. Um, you know, I want to pull this up. All right, so this one is off of BlackEnterprise.com. Uh, Black Lives Matter on the brink of bankruptcy called out for shady finances. Right. Um, this is uh, May 26, 2023. Right. You can see, uh, you know, here this tax documents show BLM's Global Network Foundation ended the financial year with eight million five hundred fifty nine thousand seven hundred forty eight dollars while still owing millions to organizers and relatives of co-founder Patrice Cullors. Uh, the New York Post reports the filings highlight how the nonprofit recorded revenue. 8.5 million more than half the 17 million the organization spent and that of course is not addressing the full 90 million we're aware of post george floyd and the questions that haven't been raised about how much was raised prior to that since mike brown uh any thoughts about any of this um as far as black lives matters finances on that man um i don't really know enough about that to be able to speak on it intelligently so i won't say anything Okay. Um, what I will say is my focus is on the people on the ground and mm -hmm. the people who have, you know, put their blood, sweat and bodies on the line with this. Those are the people who need answers even more than I do, because those are the people who have really risked everything. And I know for a fact that there are people who are still, you know, living hand to mouth even today. Um, as far as that particular situation, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to speak on it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody knows enough. I'm, as far as I know, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate, but beyond that, I got nothing on that. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm trying to understand it because this is, this is something that, you know, I haven't heard much about in my lifetime in terms of this much money, these, this, these types of resources. And then the question of how it was spent, you know, and in terms of what we know, um, a lot of that was questionable. You mentioned the mansions earlier. I, you know, it, it just was ridiculous to me. Now, coming out of, you know, as the child of a Panther, you know, knowing about, you know, COINTELPRO and these kind of things, that would have been my first assumption. But then when you see the founders defending the purchases of man mansions and whatnot, you know, it just, it, it just left a bad taste in people's mouths. And this is what, what I think made it that much more important that you were able to voice that publicly. Um, what do you think this will do to activism going forward? Oh, man, you just asked a question that I've been getting quite a bit over the past couple of weeks. I think what happened is going to be extremely, extremely devastating to organizing, black organizing in general, mm -hmm. because of those things that we talked about earlier. You know, in the public mind, any sort of black protest against any sort of anti-blackness is connected to the idea of the Black Lives Matter organization. So anybody who wants to donate or anybody who wants to support black lives, I think the majority of people, because these stories are starting to come out, 
are going to be hesitant about that. You know, even if you're not even connected to that, even if your name isn't even tied to that organization per se, the public in the public mind, they think anything that has to do with that is tied to that organization. And because there's been such a lack of transparency about what they've done, there's been such a lack of transparency with people who are even allied to the movement. That's going to make people who are very careful about where they spend their money. And it's also going to make people who are very careful about what they're seen supporting be very hesitant about supporting that on that's on that's on the level of people who are going to work every day on their everyday lives. The second part of that is the people who are real big, big check writers, the people who can pull out a million dollars and write a check and not think anything of it. I'm talking about like foundations and people who may even want to actually be altruistic when it comes to these situations are going to be very hesitant about how they open their purse strings. Because the one thing that I do know from my time of working in and in, in corporate America is that the one thing you don't want to be seen as is to be seen as a fool or somebody who can be taken advantage of. Mm. And I guarantee you that a lot of people who work in these corporations, a lot of people who work in nonprofits, a lot of people in Hollywood, a lot of people in the entertainment industry who back that organization, they're starting to feel like they got played. They got sucked into a shell game. You remember that? Remember that? Um, remember that story that Dave Chappelle said on his IG um, when he did that IG special when he talked about moving to DC. And seeing somebody oh, run, yeah. a shell, yeah. run a shell game, mm-hmm. and he figured out, and he figured out where the where the P was. He told everybody, and he got jacked up. Yeah, I guarantee you, a lot of people who are very influential feel that way. They feel like they saw where the P went, and they got played. Yeah, that's going to make it very difficult for anybody to try to really raise grassroots level, organize it to a level to where they can really affect change. And I think that's the thing that is going to be the ultimate legacy of that organization, and that's where they, I think, they've done the most damage. Because in the public mind, they've said, in my opinion, I feel like they've set organizing for black people back maybe 20 years, I feel. Wow. And, um, that's, tra- and that's tragic. Based on your, your time, how, uh, you know, how much time do you have left? Do you have to go uh, pretty soon or where, where are you at with that? No, I'm good. It's what? It's, eight, it's 820 on my end. I can roll till nine if you want. Okay. Hey, I want to give people an opportunity to post some questions uh, for you um, if they'd like. And as... Uh, as long as they're respectful, we can, uh, you know, engage some brothers who might want to. I'm going to drink some. I'm going to drink some OJ Wally while you're waiting and stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, I do have one question, so I'm putting the link in the chat. So if you have a question you want to pose, feel free to do it. Um, but my question is this: this whole question of what of, of the front lines, and I mentioned this earlier in the broadcast for a reason. You know, this this idea of what the front lines constitutes, and and the, and and I think it's been really since. I mean, obviously, we've been, you know, street protesting since before the civil rights movement. But I think there's something about uh, the March on Washington that really kind of culminated into this kind of idea that's kind of agreed upon that that is the front line. That is the only front lines of importance, you know, being on the street and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts about the front line as it pertains to the current moment? Uh, do you think the street is the only front line or, or, or the only front line of relevance? What are your thoughts about what activism is going to mean going forward in terms of identifying the front line um the front line is absolutely not the street protests i think it's a very important component of the front line and you're right we have to figure out what the front line looks like the front the front line in my opinion in the public mind again and i keep going back to the public mind because these are the things that people take in for the most part the people who put their bodies on the line on front on front line protests in the streets they are very important, but it is not the only place where protests can take place. Mm-hmm. While things go, and if you look at if you look back at the history of public protests in America, even if you go back to the Boston Tea Party and you go back to um, 
the uh, Boston attack where Crispus Attucks was the first black person to get killed in the street protest, ironically. Mm. Um, there's always been the level of public agitation and private negotiation. Mm. That's always happened. Mm. If you go back and if you take it, if you bring it up to the 60s, while people were protesting in the streets in Selma and in Birmingham and voting with their feet and voting with their wallets, there were people like A. Philip Randolph and James Farmer and Martin Luther King who were having those street protests, but they were going into private chambers to negotiate with the white power structures to see what we can do to negotiate this movement to get some sort of concession so we won't disrupt politics, so we won't disrupt things on the ground or we'll disrupt in a different way. Now you can, there's a lot of conversation you can have about was that fruitful or was that beneficial? But I'm saying that to say that protest takes place in a lot of different rooms. Mm -hmm. You can't, there's yelling on the street and then there's negotiations sitting face to face and you have to have both of those. Sometimes it's sometimes it's having conversations away from the public, away from the news media to where we can negotiate and try to figure out some sort of settlement that day. You know what I mean? And it may not happen that day. It may not happen that month. But I'm saying that to say that people have this idea that running out in the street with a bullhorn and yelling is the only thing you can do. Well, that's not true. There's so many different assets to go and there's so many different facets to protest and agitation that are just bigger than doing the public stuff in the protest. And I think people don't have a move beyond that. Do you think that there's a, a difference in treatment on gendered grounds when it comes to black protests uh, on the streets? You think there's a difference in how black men are, are regarded, black women, uh, even black LGBTs? Do you think everybody's handled the same way, especially when it comes to law enforcement and so on and so forth? Or do you think there's a difference? There's absolutely a difference. I have seen protests um, led by black men and they go one or two ways. First of all, um, the protests that I've seen by black men have happened in states where they are where they are able to let me. How can I say this? They can physically show that they can defend themselves. And I'll let people draw their own conclusions from that. Mm -hmm. and, when, and when I see them out front holding their protection, people who may have an issue with the way they move, move a different way. Mm -hmm. I've also seen protests where men are out there out front and the police presence is a lot more aggressive. Yes. I've seen that quite a few times yes. where they're trying to make arrests, trying to snatch people out and melees have happened and everything. When it's known that you're going to protest and you have the rainbow flag out there along with the BLM flag, along with these other organizations, I've seen kid gloves get, I've seen protests get handled with kid gloves in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. When women are out front, I've seen some of the easiest, most relaxed protests even though they're yelling and they're screaming at the pops and everything i've seen the energy move a whole lot different even though other people are around them too so yeah there's absolutely yeah um the energy definitely changes depending on who is out front and who's allowed to be out front to lead these protests yeah absolutely i've even had uh brothers uh, nationalist brothers who, who do security you know for 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 a living and they actually formed of you know they formed organizations to do to provide security for these types of protests and they've even called me and said man it's getting it's getting completely out of hand because they've been pushed to a position where they're not really even treated like security. They're treated like pit bulls that are expected to be, you know, forced onto cops at the discretion of often some of these women that are leading the organization. And then it gets to the point, it got in one incident this brother told me about, he was saying it got to the point where his organization and the police were having a verbal negotiation about how to navigate it because the women were getting so out of pocket that both groups of mostly men you know, just actually got to a point where they had to talk to each other because it was just that far along. And the women were expecting them to, you know, operate physically, you know, toward the police on behalf of what they were saying 
uh, in their protests. It was a weird kind of dynamic. And, and, you know, he was telling me several different stories along these lines. So, you know, this kind of gendered aspect to protest, I find interesting because it's not talked about enough, in my opinion. And I think it does have an impact and it even has an impact on how black men protest, how black men participate in, uh, you know, political protests and onward. And I think, you know, there was a good period of time uh, right around Michael Brown, where in I was in direct conversation with BLM members who were making statements like, well, you know, the, the women are on the front lines, the men are too cowardice, so on and so forth. But there was no regard about the difference in treatment. Um, so I wanted to kind of put that out there. Now, what I'm going to do, I got uh, two people, so I'm going to allow I'm gonna allow someone to ask a question and then I'm going to take you down and let Torin respond. So the first one here is, uh, hold on, let me pull the names up. So we got uh, Commander Grand Negro Black Knight Row. Okay. Uh, hey, man. Yes, sir. I hear you. Uh, I follow you on Facebook, Twitter, all that. And I, I want to say just off the rip, brother, um, T. Hassan Johnson, thank you for creating the Black Man Institute. Thank you for doing this work. Um, it's very, very vital. It's very, very important. Like I'm in post, I'm in post grad, and some of the strategies that y'all brothers has been implemented, I use in my grad papers. So I want to say thank you, just off the rip, just off the muscle, brother. Um, Torian Walker, I followed you in them Twitter spaces. Uh, you, you oh, see man. me, brother? Oh yes, 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 yes. I'm that brother. So, 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 like no other. I want to say thank you for your work and what you do on the front line for us brothers. Um, I, I don't appreciate um some of the women in the nonprofit sector. Um, taking advantage of what um, black men, um, well, just black men of our struggle and stuff that we go through. Um, mm -hmm. I've noticed personally, um, I'm involved in a case with women in the nonprofit sector who has maligned and neglected me and used misandry to undermine a black organization to help out the black collective. Um, this is the reason why I created the Negro Black Knights Heritage Club, because of the malign and neglect when it comes to black men and also the black men leadership in these roles in these civic organizations. Um, okay. But that's besides the point. Um, Brother Terrain, what are some of the things, um, Tori, uh, am I saying, I hope I'm pronouncing your name, Mr. It's Walker. Nice. I'm going to nice. no, say Mr. Walker. Me. I'm just going to sum it up, Brother Mr. Walker. I want to give you that respect. Um, Brother, Mr. Walker, what are some of the things that we can do in the nonprofit sector to make sure that black men leadership is um, developed and cultivated? Um, a lot of these organizations do not support black men leadership. They support women leadership at the expense and say that that's diversity, equity and, inclu and, and inclusion. And I feel yeah. like that's morally and ethically backwards. What are ways that we can rectify this as men so that we can um, make sure that our communities serve in an equitable in a commendable fashion. And that's my question okay. to you, big brother. Okay, I'm going to take you down, but I appreciate the question, man. And uh, keep, keep it pushing. All right. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very good question. And it's a very difficult question to answer because for a brother in the nonprofit sector, it's going to be very difficult to try to like change that culture because that culture is very centered around um, women leading. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm saying if you want to try to center uh, men, specifically black men in that world, the first thing you got to do is find men. You got to you got to uplift men who are, first of all, qualified to lead. That's the same thing I would say about anybody. Find men who are experienced in that section and find them qualified to lead and put them forward to be in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Now, when you do that, there's going to be pushback. You just got to understand that going in. 
because there are a lot of people in that sector who have an automatic aversion to men, especially black men, taking on any sort of leadership role in those worlds. Mm-hmm. But once you, when you encounter once you in, once you encounter that resistance, ask questions. How come he's? How come this person isn't fit to lead? Why can't they lead? Why do you feel like this person is not qualified to lead? And how come they can't have a voice if they're a part of this organization? Yeah. And if you don't get the answers you speak, if you don't get the answers you like, take it to the take it to the take it as high to the leadership as you can. And if that doesn't work, take it to the media. Do it that way. A lot of things don't move unless you basically put people on blast about what they're doing. And then all of a sudden you'll be surprised how many things change. Yeah. So that's my thing. Take it to the leadership find qualified men, male candidates if they don't get a fair shake in the in the leadership take it outside the leadership okay uh we're gonna bring up uh kyle h kyle can you hear me yes sir i can you can you hear me doc johnson yeah we can hear you all right all right thank, thank you very much gentlemen for allowing me to come up here and uh ask this question um uh Tere, when you were you were saying about how the requ- the requirements, especially during civil rights, where they're agitators and negotiators. It just seems that for the majority of our people, black people, we've gone away from the fr- from understanding the importance of the negotiation in itself, where it's seen like the agitation, things that are seen up front that are that are visceral, that get emotions. Um, entwined into things, that is what's more important or what that's what's seen as leadership and what change is supposed to look like instead of understanding um, the opposition and negotiating with them to come to a uh, come to an agreement that is beneficial. So can you go ahead and explain or um, give us a more um, information on the people or the groups that are trying to be the negotiators, but they're falling falling down, or at least they're not getting the support from the folks that are going to be uh, agitation first, then negotiation, or if any. Appreciate it. Okay. Did you understand the question, Torn? Um, let me just be clear. You're asking me who are the people who are negotiating, but they're not getting any sort of attention or they're not getting support. Is that the question? Uh, y- yes, sir. I was just wondering if if, if you were able to see um, it's like those uh, those organizations or uh, the folks that are actually wanting to be in the room to come to the go- to, to bring people to negotiations. I see. I see. Okay, I'm going to take you down, Kyle, but appreciate the question. Um, well, to answer the brother's question, um, there are people who, as far as organizations, I don't know of any that are really doing that. But there, I think there are people who are negotiators and who know how to go speak truth to power in a way that power can understand and they can force some concessions. But the majority of those people are not in organi- in movements that are, based, that are fundamentally based in street protests. A mm. lot of those people are lawyers. A lot of those people are some politicians at, at a certain level. Some of those people are people who actually work within organizations, but they're the people who know how to go into a room, shut the door and have conversations that people in the general public may not know. Now, here's the thing that can be a very risky thing, because if you are having quiet meetings and the people in your organization or the people outside of that don't know what you're doing, 
that can raise suspicion. And I understand that because, look, we're coming out of the situation right now that we're talking about. And we're also coming out of 50 years of organizations doing these backroom deals that nobody that don't that may not benefit people who are on the ground who have to live with these decisions. But I think we have to understand that everything, like I said earlier, does not begin on the street. You have to have people after you've got the attention of people who after your street protests, you have to have people who are skilled enough to go into a room with the people who hold the balance of power on that on, a, on an institution level and say, this is what the people want. This is what we'd like to have. This is how we can negotiate. Let's see if we can meet in the middle. You know what I mean? That has to happen. And I don't think that comes from institutions. It comes from individuals who have been vested by institutions who have the people's best interest at heart to be able to go and speak for them. Like, um, you know, like in Selma, um, I think Selma was an excellent movie when it taught to show how negotiation works mm -hmm. and how you have street protests and you have people who can go sit with the power structure and negotiate on your behalf. But those people have to have the backing of the people, first of all, and they have to have a base that's going to respect the people that they speak for. Yeah. All right. All right, man. I appreciate that. Well, I think we'll, we'll begin to close it out here. I want to get your closing thoughts uh, as well as anything else you want to you know, extend to the audience. Uh, about the work you're doing? You know, um, there is all, as long as black people live in America, there is going to be a need for somebody to advocate for us. You know, as long as our position as an economic, as a socioeconomic group, as a race of people, as a class remains where it is, we're going to need people who can speak for us and people who love us and advocate for us. And I'm, and I say, if you're going to have people who are going to speak for you, make sure those people know who you are first, make sure those people respect you and make sure when every time those people open their mouth, whether it's on a public platform, whether it's on a private platform, whether it's in the negotiating tables that I just mentioned, make sure that those people love themselves first and love you before, first and foremost of all. That doesn't mean they have to be perfect. That doesn't mean they're always going to get it right. But you have to come from a place of love for black people before you can be good to anybody. And that means all black people. And unfortunately, a lot of people who are speaking for us only have love for themselves and they don't care about us as a collective. Mm. And those people have to be gotten out of the paint. They have to be removed out of the way so people who love us can speak for us. Um, so that's right. my thoughts on that. Look, man, you, I think if I haven't communicated it to you in the past, I'm going to reiterate it uh, now. You have a standing invite to the Onyx Report, good brother. So uh, you're always welcome here, man. You know, uh, you know, especially if you, if you have something you want to, you know, let people know about, my platform is available to you. And I, I really and truly honor the work you do. Uh, it's an inspiration for me, um, it, uh, personally and professionally, man. So, you know, I just want you to know that. I, I believe in giving people their flowers while they're here. <laughs> And I, Thank since you. I have you here, I'm going to take that opportunity because uh, I think your work is profound. I think it's pushing boundaries that uh, you may not even be aware of. So thank you, brother. No, thank you. Thank you. And um, just to let everybody know, I'm actually working. I'm in the um, embryonic stages of putting together a documentary about black men in some of these fields and some of the ways we've been pushed out of some of these fields and some of the ways that we kind of get shut out from established avenues and how we create our own outlets. And some of it's going to touch on the manosphere. Some of it's going to touch on academia. So that's kind of what I'm focused on now, as well as my other work. So if you want to know more about that, you know, go to my website, um, tornwalker.com. If you want to support that work, you can go to tornwalker.com slash hashtag support if you want to contribute to that. And I'll be putting I'll be making a formal announcement about what I'm working on really soon. So just show me love on that if you can. 
Now, I put the link to your website in the chat. I'm also going to add it to uh, the description. Just scroll down and look for uh, sources, and you'll see all the articles and links that we kind of use for today. Um, uh, and, of course, uh, Torrin's website. Now, I didn't put the links for the video clips, but you can go to Torrin's Twitter, uh, and you can check some of those out. Did you, you know, did you want to share how they can uh, reach you, find some of your, your uh, media material? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can reach me at on Twitter at Torrin Walker. I'm also on Instagram at Torn Walker. Um, where else? I'm on Facebook at Torn Walker. You see the trend here, people. I'm <laughs> on um, I'm on TikTok. I have a TikTok page that I finally opened up. People have been begging me to do it for the longest. I'm on TikTok at Torn Walker. Okay. Um, pretty much. That's I think that's everything. Facebook, Instagram, I, um, Twitter, and TikTok on Torn Walker. And also, I have my YouTube um, channel, um, Torn Walker TV. And what else? Um, I think that's pretty much everything. Yeah. And again, if you want to support me, you can go to my my cash app, my um, Venmo, my um, what's the other one? Um, I always blank when it's time for me to put these things out. Um, I said my Venmo already, my uh, Patreon, and I have a Patreon, Torrin Walker. Pretty much everything is under my name, Torrin Walker, so I'm not hard to find. <laughs> well, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming up today, good brother. No, brother, thank you for having me on, man. And thank you for having this conversation. I think it's important. And I want to say much love and much respect to the work you do, man. You've really been a you've really been a groundbreaking person to move these conversations into the academic space. I know how hard it is to have these conversations in the academic world, how calcified it is. So much love to you. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. All right, man. I'll let you later. All right, man. Be good. All right. Shout out to Dr. Ronald Neal um, coming through. Just continue to call out, call out frauds and snake oil sales. Saleswomen. <laughs> uh, shout out to Ronald Neal. So make sure you support uh, Dr. Ronald Neal's channel. Make sure you support the Green Gorilla. Make sure you support BGS Idmore. Make sure you support Dr. Thunder. Make sure you support, uh, of course, uh, Torrin Walker. Uh, you know, make sure you support these brothers who are trying to produce content that is independent, that reflects black male thought without um, the concern of, of, of black men being bought off to know kind of kowtow to the mainstream you got people that actually are doing work on the ground and doing work in media that are a design that's designed to you know not only restore the black male image but speak truth i mean really it's it's that simple so shout out to all of those doing that and, and i hope you guys will continue to support brothers that are because the pushback and the the hostility even the low boiling contempt at black men and boys is so calcified and palpable that um i can't help but, you know, try and put it out there to be seen and critiqued and acknowledged for exactly what it is. And that's what I hope we do on every show. But we damn sure did it today. So I appreciate uh, Torrin coming through to do that. Um, yeah, man. So thank you for supporting. Um, it is what it is. I'm, I'll be up. Uh, I'll probably do something in the next day or two, because, like I said, I want to cover um, some of the stuff going on with uh, the Spider-Man series. I think there's some elements there that are, are that have to be talked about. And I do support brothers checking that out if you get a chance to, uh, especially if you have sons, you know, um, if you have sons or, or, or young boys that you are mentoring. Uh, I think it, it's not only a good film to watch, but, you know, it opens up conversations uh, that I think are, are pertinent and invaluable in many respects. Uh, but one of the things I will say about the film without going through any spoilers is you end up seeing, um, you know, what what tends to happen when black men are forced to operate with very little support, mostly on their own. And I think that was captured pretty well in this film. And I thought it was important because I can't, you know, I don't know any brothers that aren't, that are in my circle that haven't had to live that reality and our sons having to live that reality. So 
it definitely put that on on the front block to be looked at, and I think it's important that we you know examine that. So anyway, check that out if you get a chance. Uh, keep supporting the Onyx Report, and I look forward to uh, seeing y'all soon. I'll have a good one. Peace. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man-children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unintelligent henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.